Hey y'all, you're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy, thanks for stopping by. Today my guest back by the woodpile is a feller by the name of Paul Buchanan, but I just call him Uncle Paul, as that he is my dad's brother. He's led an interesting life, I think, and so he's agreed to share a few of his memories with us today. And take me back to the hills of Indiana. I guess my first question would be, talk about your parents, my grandparents, their origins, how they met. <laughs> uh, Dad was born and grew up in Campbellsville, Kentucky. He played trombone and was fairly good at it and went to a revival there in General Presbyterian Church uh, because they asked him to play his trombone. And it was there that he became a Christian, gave his life to the Lord at a revival. He was just there as a musician. And uh, for a while, he tried to figure out what he wanted to do with his life as far as uh, being a Christian now and wanting to actually play big band music. That's what his desire was, to be a director of a Glenn Miller kind of uh, big band. So anyway, I think he went to college in... Um, in Florida for a while, uh, didn't do too well there. Someone suggested he go to Trevecca, so that's that's where he ended up. Mom was actually born in uh, Indiana, uh, Jonesboro, Indiana, but was raised in Ohio. So she came from Ohio. Uh, she's the oldest of four uh, kids, four, four girls, and uh, all of them, uh, I think all but one of them, went to Trevecca. So mom was at Trevecca uh, and dad came down to go to Trevecca and that's where they met. In the music uh, building, you might say, because dad was playing trombone and needed somebody to accompany him and mom played piano. So that's how they they met. Talk about Trevecca a little bit because I don't think a whole lot of people are aware of his existence even. Well, Trevecca is located uh, just uh, outside of uh, Nashville, Tennessee. Maybe it is in Nashville uh, on Murfreesboro Road. And it started back uh, at the turn of the century, 1905 or something like that. So it's been around a long time, but it was a small Christian college affiliated with the uh, uh, Church of the Nazarene. Back then, when Bo- mom and dad went to college, dad got a job on campus slopping the hogs. He would feed the hogs to kind of pay for his college. He tells a story that he arrived at Trevecca with his trombone, the clothes on his back, and a change of underwear inside the trombone case. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) uh, Mom was probably more uh, ready for college than, than dad was. Dad did not finish even the first year. And so Trevecca was a prominent place in their life, even though they didn't spend much time there. Trevecca has really developed over the years. And right now it's a a fairly respectable college. I also attended Trevecca as well as a a sister of mine. It has a great music program and would play um, some of the colleges in the area like uh, Vanderbilt, Belmont, Scarrett in sports. So it was a, it's a, a fun college to go to. 
it wasn't real large. Perhaps now it runs about 2,000, 2,500. Also at Treveca, at least when they were there, I remember them talking about there was a, at least a, a couple of people that would end up being celebrities in the Southern Gospel world. Oh, yes. Mom and Dad were close friends, not just kind of knew them. The close friends of Ben and Brock and Faye Spear of the Spear family. I have hope. I have hope. I have hope. They were in college at the same time, and they became good friends. When I grew up, we had a set of towels that were his and her. That's what they said, his, her, on the towels. And they would point to those towels and say, uh, the Spear family gave us those towels when we got married. It was a wedding gift. So they they weren't just kind of friends. They they knew each other, and Dad were to show up at a Spear concert. He would go up and talk to him uh, as friends, not just as somebody who wanted to know them. Now, do you know when? Grandpa decided he was going to be a preacher, or when he felt the call, as they say? Sure. Dad tried to make a living as a musician, but that was not to be, because it's hard to be a musician and make a living, a starving artist, they call him. So Dad kind of floated around between jobs, and I believe at that time, um, when he got a call to ministry, he was working uh, in Paul Mollet, the factory. I'm not sure exactly what he was doing. His skill set was not designed for factory work, I would say it that way. But mom and dad had five children, all pretty close in age. When the oldest, David, was five years old, my sister Martha was four, and I had another sister. She was two, and I was one when my youngest brother, Jim, was born. So it was zero, one, two, three, one, two, four, five. Uh-huh. Anyway, Dad tells the story about he was in church. I think he probably had led the singing. And the us kids who were unattended because Mom was playing the piano and Dad was leading the music, we were probably sitting on the first row or second row and had misbehaved. So Dad took us down to the basement to uh, have a little correction of our of our behavior and came back up into the church building and sat on the back row with us formerly misbehaving kids. And that was when God called him to be a, a pastor, to be a preacher. He got a call sitting around uh, unruly kids, you might say. <laughs> The sun shines bright on my old Kentucky home. It's summer, the old folks are gay. The corn tubs are ripe and the manners are in bloom. While the birds make music all the day. We... To go back in time a little bit, do you remember much of their parents? My grandfather, uh, Grandpa Buchanan, died when I was two, so I never... Uh, remember him uh, personally I have some photos that I've seen of him and uh, that's the only memory I have he was an electrician when I was born um, had his own shop electrical shop 
my grandmother came from a fairly wealthy family and they had some money. I'll just say it that way, but they did not do well with the electric business. And then he passed away and then grandma Buchanan, um, kind of survived. I will say it that way, but it wasn't terrible. It's just not the lifestyle they were living beforehand. Now, the other set of grandparents, they were in Dayton, Ohio, and that grandpa I knew quite well, and he too kind of worked with uh, electronics. He worked for Delco Remy, which installed radios and things in cars that would have been back in the 50s, 60s, long through there. We used to go to visit them, and Grandma was fun to be around. Grandpa just tolerated us kids when we were there. Um, best memories I have of being at their house was they had a television. We didn't have a television. And so we would schedule our whole day around I Love Lucy and other programs that we loved to watch back then on the television. And then Grandpa, he came home. Uh, we all had to get out of the room, and he read the newspaper and watched the news and watched whatever he wanted to on television. I think he liked to watch the uh, late-night entertainers, but that's what he liked to watch. Most kids didn't care much for that. I love Lucy and she loves me We're as happy as two can be Sometimes we quarrel, but then <laughs> How we love making up again Lucy uh, At some point, the whole family ends up living at a campgrounds. So explain... How did that come about? And also, what was life like as a family living on a campgrounds, which I assume that every week or so there would be different people staying there? Yeah, that's actually a good memory that I have of the first six years of my life living on a holiness campground just outside of New Albany, Indiana. It's called the Silver Heights area of town. Right now, it's a very desirable area to be in. But back then, there was just a campground surrounded by woods. There really wasn't houses too much around there. But Dad struggled financially uh, getting a job, holding a job. His skill sets were not designed for the for the jobs that were there. So we, we lived on a campground that was not designed to live in year-round. In other words, it, the houses really weren't insulated for winter. Most people would come in early, uh, kind of springtime, stay there throughout the summer for the different events on the campgrounds. And then, then they would board up everything and, and head out. But we stayed there consecutively for about six years, I believe. We moved uh, from one cabin to another cabin to another cabin. So there's three different cabins that we lived in there. One of the memories I have about living in the cabin is, like I said, it wasn't designed to be lived in during the winter. And a couple times, maybe three times, the, uh, our cabin almost caught on fire because there was a flu vent that went up the side of the house and nearly caught the house on fire. And I remember my dad filling a basin with water and running out and throwing water up on the side of the house trying to <laughs> put the fire out. But I loved living there because... I got to watch the the campground being refurbished every spring and they would paint the trees with whitewash and they would clean out the tabernacle that had just been sitting idle for uh, the, the winter and they would make repairs and I would just love to, to just roam around and watch what the workers were doing. 
So how did he get, I guess, permission to live there for so long? Was he uh, paid to live there or did he do a job or something? I don't know the answer to that. My guess is that somebody owned that cabin and out of the goodness of their heart allowed us to live there. I guess until maybe summer, then we had to figure out where we we're going to live and maybe somebody had a cabin that they weren't going to be using that year and we moved to another one and then the third one. So I'm guessing that's what happened. I don't really know. You know, is it, um, one to six-year-old kid doesn't really understand what's going on. You just kind of roll with it. You tell some stories, uh, or I've heard you tell some stories about how the Buchanans seem to have a knack for losing children. <laughs> I know you tell at least one story about the zoo where somebody gets lost, and then there's another one, I think, where Aunt Martha got lost out in front of a grocery store. Do you mind retelling those stories? David and Martha were the first two. And when, then there was a, a gap of a couple, couple years between Martha and the next child. Um, but it was just David and Martha at the time. And my guess is their ages would have been perhaps two years old and, and three years old or something like that. And dad was watching them, I guess you might say, and had put them in a wagon and had pulled them down to a store in Louisville, Kentucky. And while he was in the store, he just left them in the wagon and went in the store to buy something. And, you know, my dad would always talk to everybody in the world and get into a conversation to a total stranger. And so he probably got lost track of time. And then he came out. David was still in the wagon and Martha was not there. So dad said to David, who was probably about three years old, uh, where is Sissy? And referred to Martha as Sissy. Where's Sissy? And David said, Sissy gone. <laughs> and my dad, my dad, more desperate and, and, you know, emphatically said to him, where is Sissy? And David held up his arms and said, Sissy gone. <laughs> so anyway, clearly, dad began, began to figure out, look around to see where she was and went around the corner and kind of down the street a couple businesses i guess and there was a guy that was with martha and gave dad quite a lecture about how he needed to be more responsible for his kids <laughs> the second story is my mom and dad had five children and there were three sisters of mom and each one of those sisters had five children so four daughters five uh children each so there's 20 grandkids of which I would have been one. So anyway, one of the sisters was visiting mom and dad in the New Albany, Louisville area. And I'm not sure how many kids each family had at that time. I'm guessing at least four. So there were a whole gaggle of kids that we went off to a zoo. Uh, I believe it was in New Albany. It could have been Louisville and went through the zoo. And when we loaded up into two different cars to to go back to where we were living, um, they did not know that I didn't get into the car. I had wandered off or something. I'm not sure what happened. I was probably only about three years old at the time. And they did not discover me missing until they all got back there. And eventually somebody said, well, where's Paul? And so then they went back to try to find me. In the meantime, um, I was found by a neighbor who lived close to the zoo. So I'm guessing that I had 
followed them all the way to the cars. But when they were getting into the car, that's when I wandered off. And so they they gathered me up and brought me to a policeman's home. I still have a memory of them letting me sit at their <laughs> kitchen table and eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, waiting for my parents to contact the police. And they had already contacted the police, of course, and and they showed up and picked me up. So that was. <laughs> Uh, I got uh, I got left behind in the zoo. Not in the monkey cage, but I did get left behind. I was about to ask, so you didn't end up getting raised by gorillas or something? <laughs> that would be an interesting story. No, I wasn't adopted by the monkeys or anything. <laughs> <laughs> Another story you tell is uh, about something called weenie water. What's that? Oh, this was <laughs> this is about the same time. My dad did not know his way around in the kitchen. He was not a cook in any stretch. Uh, he would make popcorn. That was about it. But he and my uncle Dorsey, like I said, they had five kids. They were left in charge of watching us kids while the, the moms went to the grocery store to buy food. Well, they had hot dogs that they had warmed up for lunch and eventually the moms had not returned right away. And so us kids were hungry and we were crying because we wanted something to eat or drink and they, there was not any milk left in the house. So being the innovative person that these guys were, they decided to put um, hot dog water or weenie water in a bottle to feed us kids. And so they, they laughed about the story later along when telling them because they would give the bottle to one of us or whoever was using the bottle at the time. And then we would try to drink the weenie water and, you know, would make a real funny face because it didn't taste like milk or anything we were used to drinking. <laughs> uh, but then we would try it again because we were really hungry. And so once again, we would make a real funny face and dad and uncle Dorsey would laugh about how uh, they found it to be entertaining uh, rather than pitiful that we were drinking weenie water. Oh, where did you get your religion? Tell me now. Where did you get your religion? Tell me now. Where did you get your religion? Ooh. I think a lot of people that maybe didn't grow up in church or maybe if they do uh, go to church, maybe don't maybe spend a lot of time with the the preacher. Don't realize that it, being a pastor is more than just you know delivering sermons and you know taking up the offering. That you know during the week they're trying to help people or they're you know giving some counseling and all that kind of thing. And you mentioned that uh, Grandpa seemed to have a big heart for uh, people that were down on their luck. What memories do you have of that? Yeah, Dad uh, at this time would have been bivocational because he worked at the Louisville Gas and Electric Company and also pastored. So he was not there a lot because he was working full time, but he would be around. And we lived real close to railroad tracks. They actually were right behind our house. And occasionally there, we called them bums back then, uh, a homeless person, someone just traveling through would come to our house and knock on the door and ask if they could have some food or some money. And dad would always find a way to help them. We didn't have a lot, but he would make them a sandwich. Mom canned 
some things. And so we had um, green beans and tomatoes and different things that we had canned. And dad would give them a jar of um, uh, tomato juice or green beans or something to try to help them. Uh, some of the people who were needy were just right there in the community. So they would also try to help people with clothing and and blankets and things like that. So I don't think it was just dad, but dad did have a heart for people who were uh, needy and, and worse off than us, even though we were very poor by uh, today's standards. Another thing about preacher's kids, there's a lot been said about preacher's kids. And I, I know, obviously, uh, having a lot of preacher kids in the family and then you know talking to others at Trevecca and different places, you know, some of them get a little bit, uh, you know, a little bit bitter, or maybe some have better memories than others. And like, I know, like sometimes they would express that they felt like they never had privacy or even the right to fail because all eyes were on them. You know, they were the the children of the you know the pastor, and also living in a parsonage. Maybe some of the church members would you know come in without knocking or feel like the family living there that wasn't their house they didn't have a right to their privacy go ahead i do think it's somewhat biblical concept that has been misused i'll say it that way there is a higher expectation for how a pastor lives his life Mm -hmm. uh it's supposed to be a role model it's supposed to uh, have certain qualities and live by them and so i think mistakenly by extension people expect that of the of the kids and and sometimes too much uh, of the wife or the spouse who is not the pastor uh, that they are to somehow or another be uh, holy and like christ and be perfect in some measure so by extension they expect the kids to um, live by a higher standard than even the the laymen are supposed to live by because after all they're the the pastor's son or daughter so yeah i think we felt some of that and we're maybe our mom and dad tried to um live up to that i don't know that i was um warped by it too much i was pretty much a free spirit and just did what i wanted to but just tried to stay out of trouble but managed to get into a lot of trouble anyway. But I do think that there is that expectation and sometimes they feel like they own the pastor. Um, and I, you might say own the house because we we didn't live in a house that belonged to us while I was growing up. It always belonged to the church. It was a parsonage. So they would they would do things to the house that maybe we wouldn't want to do, you know, change this or that or come in and paint the rooms. And so my mom could could pretty much stand up to that kind of leadership and say, no, I don't want it that way. And, and they would listen to her. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't want to push my mom too far. She would push back. Well, speaking of grandma, and just like you say that a lot is expected of the pastor's wife when I've even heard one pastor's wife, she told her husband, like, that's not my calling. You're the one that's called to be the pastor. I'm to be your wife. So she didn't uh, think that she should do more than an ordinary wife should do. But I know with grandma, she was very involved also with the church. And it was almost like probably a co-pastorship in some ways, do you think? Very much so. She 
pretty much gave up her desire or career to be a pastor's wife and supported my dad in many ways. I would even say dad expected her to, you know, go calling with him uh, when he would go calling, uh, do some of the things around the church that maybe were not necessarily things that she wanted to do, but because she was his wife, he kind of had higher expectation of her uh, to a fault. And so mom uh, was very supportive. She was a great pastor's wife and shared in ministry, but it was probably not her calling. It was not her calling, uh, but it was something that she gave herself to. And she was a wonderful woman. You know, I thought of her nearly as a saint. She was just a wonderful woman. Um, and then I was meeting with one of her sisters. Her name was is Esther. We were having a reunion. I said, could you tell me some stories about mom when uh, she was growing up as a kid? Because I never heard mom talk about her, her upbringing or anything like that. So Esther told a story. <laughs> that I found very fascinating. She said when Frida, that was my mom, when mom became a teenager, she started hanging around with a girl down the street who was wearing lipstick and smoking cigarettes. And my mom, Frida, started smoking and wearing lipstick, which she wasn't supposed to do. And so one time, my grandma came upstairs and my mother had been smoking and had left a burn, burn mark on a dresser. And so her mom said, what's that from? And uh, my mom said, I don't know. I don't know what happened. I don't know how that got there. And she just lied her way out of it. <laughs> but my grandpa was a chain smoker. So the smell of smoke was all throughout the house. So I, I didn't know that wild side of mom until she told that story. And I just learned that just a few months ago. I also remember grandma, and this may have been later on, but she would often go pick up people. We call them shut-ins. A lot of them, I would say, have mental problems to say the least, but she seemed to have a, a great patience with them, more so than most people would, I think. Sure. I'll tell you a story that we used to retell, you know, how you have stories and you just retell them because they're funny. <laughs> and uh, then out of that comes a, a line that people uh, that we, we keep telling to other people. There was a lady in the church who was really poor and uh, didn't have very many clothes that were nice. And my mom reached out to her to, to help her. And the lady did not wear a bra. And so my mom took it upon herself to help her buy one. So she asked the lady, um, well, what size do you wear? And I don't think the lady knew what size she wore, probably had never had one. And so she told my mom, well, any size will do. <laughs> and so <laughs> my mom was not happy with that response. And I think actually took her shopping to try to find a bra for her. But that became a line that we used to say about just anything randomly, we would say, well, any size will do. And we knew <laughs> that was a reflection on the story of my mom trying to, to help this lady uh, dress properly. Make friends with the rich and make friends with the poor. Make friends with the high and make friends with the low. Even a little child 
you ought to greet him with a smile while traveling through this world try to make friends okay this is a story about jim my youngest brother jim and and i and david and the girls were with mom in downtown louisville kentucky and Mom was wanting to buy some shoes for the girls. I think it was for Easter. It could have been for Christmas. I don't know. But we were all down there, all five of us kids. And Mom had taken the girls into a a shoe store. And David stayed in the car, but Jim and I, we went into the store and uh, were with Mom and the girls while they were shopping for shoes. We got bored or perhaps mom said you guys need to go back to the car because we were misbehaving i don't know why she told us go back to the car we just decided we were going to do something else so as jim and i were walking uh, back to the car we noticed a fire alarm switch you might call it um but it was something that we hadn't seen before we didn't really know what it was we looked at it and jim got the idea that perhaps it was a candy ball machine and he could uh, get some candy or some money out of it that somebody had left so he got it went up to it and pulled the lever down to see if there was uh, anything there and there wasn't and so we went to the car was waiting for mom but went long till we uh, heard sirens and we were excited we were from a small town and we hadn't been around a lot of sirens and police cars and things like that so we heard these sirens we we got all excited about the sirens coming closer and closer well they were fire trucks that were coming because somebody had pulled a false alarm since we were parked right by it the firemen determined that one of us had pulled the false alarm and indeed jim had done that but we didn't know we had done it we we just were just exploring So the firemen and the policemen were there and they decided they were going to teach us rascals a lesson and take us down to the police station. So uh, David was there and they tried to get David to come down to the police station. David said, no, I'm not going. I was not with them when they did it. and I'm not going. And they didn't take him. They, They took Jim and me down there to show us how bad we had been and we were going to be into a life of crime by the way we were headed. And my mom was in tears and everybody was upset that we were criminals. And um, after a while, they they let us go home. There was a very small article in the the Louisville paper about (laughs) someone pulling a a false alarm in downtown Louisville. Another story that both you and my dad, I've heard him talk about it too, was you, I guess you had this tradition of y'all making a dummy. Well, around Halloween every year back then, we would make a dummy. It was made out of old clothes stuffed with a newspaper and kind of stitched together in some fashion to where he would have shoes and, and a pair of jeans and a shirt and a hat and um, I'm not sure how we fashioned the head, but we did that. And then um, we would kind of have fun during that season of Halloween, hiding it in someone's bed or in the closet or different places. So people would, you know, be startled when uh, they would come in and there would be this dummy laying in bed or, or in the closet or whatever. So we would put it 
different places in the house. And one of the places we would put it was the porch swing, which was out front in the house and just lay it there. And for the trick or treating, we had, we had gone away trick or treating. And while we were gone, dad got dressed exactly like the dummy. I mean, exactly like him so that he got on the porch swing and just kind of laid there whimsically. And we thought it was the dummy. And so did other trick-or-treaters that came up to our porch. And when they got up on the porch, dad would jump up and say boo or something and scare them half to death. Well, we, we too, when we came back home, here was the dummy laying on the porch spring swing. We didn't think anything about it. And as we were getting to go back in the house, dad jumps and scares us out of our wits because uh, he was a practical joker. He was always trying to get people to laugh and he would do, silly things and dress up different ways. So it was not totally out of character for dad to do something like that. I seem to remember there's some stories attached to your sisters having some dolls. Well, you know, not just sisters. Uh, your dad, um, Davis, had a, a doll. Did you know that? I don't know, but do tell. <laughs> he had a doll um, that was stuffed full of of beans or corn i don't know exactly which one but i think it was beans was it homemade or something it could have been um made by by just somebody in the church or her mom could have made it she liked to sew but it was just a small doll not very big at all i would say maybe at most uh 20 inches tall maybe more like 12 it was just just a small little doll and david for whatever reason the story i remember is he ran over the doll with his bicycle. And so, whether intentionally or unintentionally, he declared the doll was dead. And so, he buried it in the backyard. And I don't think we really knew anything about that, except come spring, we started getting things growing uh, unexpectedly out of the, uh, the backyard. It was like corn or beans, I forgot what it was. And, and come to find out that that doll had uh, sprouted. So that was one story. Becky had a doll that would, when she tried to discipline the doll for misbehaving, she would um, hit on its head with a, with a knife, you know, holding the sharp part of the knife and hitting on the top of the baby's head with a, the handle end. <laughs> and eventually she uh, cracked the baby's doll's head. And so we nicknamed the doll Crackenhead. That was that was the name of the doll. I think she called it Charlie or something else. But we started calling her doll Crackenhead because she had she had broken the head of the doll. That's the two stories I remember. Right. We all had, I guess, a few dogs in your childhood. Do you want to talk about any of them? Well, we always um, had dogs and. Uh, I don't know where we got them or how that came about. I know one dog we had um, that my aunt would raise dachshund puppies and then would sell them for a living. And I think there was a dachshund litter that was not pure for whatever reason. And so we got a dog that was half dachshund. That was kind of the dog I really remember. But there was kind of dogs around. When we moved to Evansville, Indiana, we wanted to get a puppy. And so we convinced dad after a lot of haranguing and complaining and whining to help us get a puppy. 
he went down to the dog pound, we called it back then, the rescue place for animals, and brought home a, a puppy. And it was kind of reddish looking puppy, so we named it Rufus. And Rufus, uh, I'm not sure what kind of uh, sickness that Rufus had, but he was really sick and he vomited and you know, diarrhea, the whole thing just was not a healthy dog. And so dad took that dog back to the dog pound and <clears throat> traded it in for another dog. And that dog was also sick, sickly. And so we did our best to keep the dog from dying or getting more sick. So we gave it um, all kinds of medicine that we could find, uh, nocomagnesia, Pepto-Bismol, I think we probably gave it some aspirin or whatever else we might have had just laying around in the cabinets. And the dog recovered, and uh, Smokey Joe was the name of that dog. We had that dog all through my early teens, junior high, up uh, to high school, until all of us left the home, and Mom and Dad still had the dog, and then eventually gave it to someone else. That dog lived to be about 18 years old. It was uh, a healthy dog, I might say. Smokey Joe was a great dog. It was fun to have around. Uh, he was he, he he never saw a dog that he didn't think he could beat up. And no matter how big it was, <laughs> he was only a medium sized dog. But he would he would tear into another big dog just because. Well, he loved to fight. But I I love dogs. I still do. Uh, my wife thinks I should have been a veterinarian because. <laughs> I love uh, dogs in particular so much. There was another dog that had this really long name. I couldn't remember the the, the name. And so I, when we referred to this dog, which I don't think I ever actually even met it, uh, Icky Sticky Stombo or Icky. Yeah. Explain, uh, first of all, the origins of that dog and why the name. And also, if you don't mind telling us the whole name. Yeah, that was actually dad's dog when he was um, a teenager. I would say a kid, teenager, I'm not sure the years. He had a dog, so we, we never met the dog either. But what was fascinating about the dog, which Dad called Icky, uh, was his name. The, the complete name of the dog was Icky Sticky Stombo Noso Rombo Adiwadi Bosco Nurion Turion Tyron Tumbo Yahaka Hula Hikadula Mills Buchanan Jr. <laughs> so that was... <laughs> So you can see why he just called him Icky. It'd be, you know, the dog would be long gone before you finished his name. <laughs> you were trying to call him. So Icky, uh, it, the name Dad would break down into parts. Uh, Icky, Sticky, Stumble, Noso, Rumble, Adiwadi, Bosco, Nurion, Turion, Tyron, Tumble was the name of a king. Um, and I think there's actually a children's book that is somewhat similar to that, that name. And then Yahakahula Hikadula was the name of a musical piece that my dad played on his trombone. So Yahakahula Hikadula. Mills was the name of the lady who gave him the dog Buchanan, of course, is the last name. And to just make sure it was not uh, somebody else, it was Junior. Mills <laughs> Buchanan, Junior. <laughs> but dad used to tell stories all the time. And that was one of the stories that he would tell so often that all of us could could say the name of this dog we never met. And even some other uh, relatives like cousins and nephews and things like that, they also could say the name of the dog because dad would, would tell us the story all the time. <laughs> <laughs>
We're going to pick back up with Uncle Paul in a few episodes, but if you're still in a mood for more Americana tales, you might give In the Corner Back by the Woodpile episode 235 and 216 a listen, those featuring Paul's brother, my dad, sharing his own stories of local characters and multiple mishaps. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at SpunCounterGuy at Hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya. Hey, <laughs> hey,